Acts chapter 6. Church is growing. Persecution is beginning. God is blessing. And people are being added to the body of Christ on a regular basis. Some of the texts literally say daily. God was adding people to the church. Verse 1 of chapter 6 picks up the story prior to the martyrdom of Stephen. It says, in those days, and this is a key statement, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip and the rest of the names. Verse 6. They presented them, without my glasses on, uh, uh, they, they presented them, these men, to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7 then, here's the flow. So, the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. That statement jumps out like, What? A large number of the priests. Okay, here's the question I want to ask you. What, what country in the world do you think is the most charitable? Okay, what country in the world do you believe is the most charitable country in the world? Speak out. United States, okay. Sweden, okay. Any other thoughts? No one said Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, did they? Did I hear anybody say China? Seriously. Anybody say China? Anybody say India? Okay. I would like to ask the college students if they've ever heard this simple fact. Okay. That the most generous country, the most charitable country in the world is the country you live in. I was not surprised by that fact. I get really irritated when I hear people talk. Now, look, I'm not like pro-patriot, talk about politics in church kind of guy, okay? Probably to the irritation of many of you, okay? I don't go there, okay? I don't think that's my job in this pulpit. But I think I can say this. I think I can say that because of the history of America as a largely Judeo-Christian, ethically-based nation, that there is a reason why America is the most charitable country on the planet, even though there are countries that are approaching almost four times its size. From them, charity does not flow. Why? Because there is no Judeo-Christian ethic motivating and sustaining a generous spirit. The World Giving Index... In 2011, December 2011, this is in the Huffington Post, ranked the U.S. as the most charitable country on earth. Climbed from fifth place to the rank of the most generous in the world in that year. 
giving $212 billion. Okay, that does not count the enormous portion of our multi-trillion dollar budget that is given to charity in this country through the tax system and tax code. Okay, we're charitable in that way. That's, that's non-compulsory giving that happens in this country, getting ready to approach a quarter of a trillion dollars a year. Okay, that to me is an amazing statistic. Okay, so when you hear people bash the country you live in, ask them to check the facts. Okay, and I'm not saying that because I think America is doing everything it should. By far, we are not doing, by any stretch of the imagination, everything that we should. But I think we should be grateful for the truth that God has worked in a very powerful way through this country. And that's something I think we should give thanks for. The writer of this article issued this challenge to the United States. Fascinating. He says, the point to leave with American leaders is is this, that the world really needs America. It needs its generosity, its resource and spirit. And though times are really hard, this is the time we need to keep giving as much as we possibly can. Now that to me is fascinating. Come from a secular person that lives in another country saying, the world really needs America now. What are they saying? There are enormous needs in the financial condition that the world is in today. And it is vital that a country like America steps up to the plate. With that, I would 100% agree. And I would encourage us, okay, to be incredibly charitable. But I think the point that this article leaves with the church is this, okay? And that is this, this very simple challenge. The world really needs you. The world really needs the impact of believers who are cut free from individualism, who are separated from the self-centered lifestyle of our culture, who are liberated to be generous with the use of their lives in impacting those around us. In the same sense that the world needs the generosity of America, even more so I think we could say that the world needs to see the selfless living of the body of Christ. This is a text that deals with a fundamental need that was present within the church. There were people who were widows, and in the ancient world to become a widow was a devastating judgment. Okay, it it meant very serious trouble in your life. The church took up the banner for those people and established funds, established, if you will, paradigms and models by which people could be put on the list, 1 Timothy tells us. Okay, and the church began a pattern of Christ-like generosity and selfless service. Okay, the world needs that. Washington, New Jersey needs that. The state of New Jersey needs to see Christians who are set free from the bondage of self-centeredness and free to open up their hands and begin to serve the community in which God has called them to live. Now, this story of how the church established a structure to care for the needs of people that were seriously struggling and suffering. This text emerges in a context that to me is fascinating. It comes up in a context of growth for the church. Verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, verse 7, the word of the Lord spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So it's a 
For the church, it was a season of growth. They were experiencing good and awesome things. The power of God was at work. Miraculous signs were taking place. And God was moving and working. And people, as a result of those things, were being added to the church. But what happens? Okay, here's the truth from Scripture. As things begin to progress, and as the church of God begins to experience progress, what happens? The evil one tends to want to come and add pressure against what God is doing. Here, there are unmet needs that are surfacing. Okay, some of the, um, of, of the Jewish people there, the Hebraic Jews, were being overlooked. Or, I'm sorry, the Grecian Jews were being overlooked and were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Now, that probably raises questions for you because you're saying, what are Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews? Where do they come from? Okay. You go back into 586 and 722 B.C., you'll find when there was a time of, of uh, challenge and devastation and destruction in Jerusalem, 586, Jews are scattered throughout the world after that. 722, the ten northern tribes are attacked in Israel, and the people from those, or the, the southern two tribes, I'm sorry, are attacked in 586, and they're scattered throughout the world in what's called the Alila, or the return, that we've seen in, our, in my generation, certainly. In that return, people came back who were Jewish, but were Greek-speaking. Okay, so in, in that time, culturally, you would say they were Hellenized. They had adopted characteristics of the Greek culture, which was a dominant world power prior to the rise of Rome. Okay, so they're Hellenized Jews. They, they've adopted the Greek culture. Okay, now you bring together serious Jews who stayed home, okay, who are loyal, who are, if you will, uh, orthodox, okay, and you mix them with people that have been secularized. They speak a different language. Okay, they're different. Underlying in the church, what did you have? You had a fundamental suspicion about the commitment of the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, and that suspicion was held by the Hebraic Jews. Okay, the result was that there began to be a divide in terms of the generosity. The Hellenistic Jews, the ones that were more worldly wise, were being ignored, and the more devout ones were being taken care of. Okay, that raises a tension. Okay, it's not the first tension we've seen in the church. Okay, the first tension that came into the church was what? Acts chapter 4. Persecution. As the church began to grow, persecution came to oppress. Secondly, what happens? Corruption from within. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where Satan is manipulating circumstances to disrupt the unity of the church. Acts chapter 6. The church is growing. God is adding. What happens? In the midst of that set of circumstances, tension is rising. Okay, it's always the way that you will find it to be. As God begins to work in your life, prepare yourself for rough waters. Why? The enemy is not applauding the growth of the church. Okay, he comes against it. And in this case, he comes against it to bring a divide. Therefore, to conquer. It's the strategies that the evil one uses. John MacArthur, concerning this text, makes this observation. He says, in a congregation of that size, it is inevitable that someone's needs would be overlooked. And in the overlooking of those needs, a perfect storm for conflict and division, people kind of siding up on one side or the other, it began to emerge. How would they address that problem? Okay, the answer to that question is this. They established something that we, from First Timothy, know is called a ministry of deacons and deaconesses. People that would serve within the context of the church to care for, in a strategic way, the needs of needy people. Okay, so... 
conflicts are rising, needs aren't being met, the church sets up under the direction of the Spirit of God a strategy by which those needs will not get overlooked. Result, the church is unified, verse 7, and it begins to grow again. Okay? So, that tension rises in the context of church life is no surprise. It's present throughout Scripture because Scripture is not written to be propaganda. It's written to give us a true picture of what life was like in the body of Christ and how the church responded to troubling circumstances as the Spirit, and you'll see it over and over and again in this text, where the Spirit of God is leading and guiding and directing to solutions that will enhance the capacity of the church to reach the world around them. Okay? The result of the service is always what? More people are being added. Why? Because they are seeing a convincing, and can I use this word, a magnetic aspect of the church, something attractive, something that was drawing them to want to be part of it. They wanted to know what is going on with these people that live like this. Why are they so concerned about serving others? Why do they love in the ways that they love? So the resolution to the tension, a team of if you will, table waiters or servants arises within the church, assumes the responsibility for the care of the impoverished and needy, particularly in this case, the widows. Okay, so that's the, that's the overview, if you will, of this text. Now, I'm not going to bury myself in this text this morning too deeply. What I want to do is, is as a result of that story, I, wanna, I want us to look at the power of selfless service and how it transforms and changes communities. Okay, my desire is this. My desire is to kind of lay out for you a challenge. Okay, a challenge to say, look at your life. Okay, and ask yourself this question. Okay, can I, in my life, identify the last time that I gave up time or resources to serve someone else? Okay, not necessarily someone overwhelmingly impoverished, but just... An, an act of kindness in the name of Christ. Okay, so I, do, I, I, I lay that challenge before you. I'll come back to that question at the end. Just think in your life. Okay, when is the last time that I, I stepped out and initiated? I didn't wait to be asked. I initiated an act of love and sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else or for the benefit of a ministry that needs help in order to meet the needs that are present within our church family and within our community. Okay, so just... Let me just float that out there. Not to make you feel guilty, okay? But to cause you to say, God, that is an aspect of my Christian life that needs to be cultivated. I need to throw the fertilizer of the love of Christ on service in my life so that works of righteousness for the glory of God will spring forth so that the gospel that we love will be made known in our community, okay? And hopefully well beyond our community. Okay, so that's, that's the challenge. Problems arise in the path of obedience. But when they are handled properly, more growth occurs. Okay, and God in those things is glorified. How we respond matters very, very much. Selfless, sacrificial service. I'm going to make this as a proposition. Okay, I believe that selfless, sacrificial service is central to our identity as Christians. Okay, I believe that selfless, sacrificial service is central. It's the core of who we are to be in the world that God has called us to live in. Okay, we're not to be the voice of complaint. We're not to be the voice of antagonism. You know what Christians are mainly known for? For being antagonists. Okay, now, should we be people of truth? The answer is absolutely yes. But always serve 
truth on a platter of love. That's what the early church does. That's what Jesus does repeatedly. And you know what he does? He gains an audience. Does his love eliminate opposition? Okay? Does his love eliminate opposition? Does the love of the early church eliminate opposition? Does it take them out of the fight? The answer is absolutely not. But it was the platter upon which the church offered up and served to their world the love and work of Christ on the cross. So I want us to, after last week, or the last two weeks, talking about a, cultivating a passion for evangelism, hopefully you sat down and you thought about it, and you said, okay, God, how am I doing in that area? Am I sharing my faith with people that need to know the truth about Christ? I think many of us could probably look at our lives and say, I have a hard time finding people that I'm close enough with to engage in a conversation about the glorious good news. How do I get there? Okay, I believe this text answers that question. Go get involved. Go shower the love of Christ on needy people. They're all around you. They may not be poor, but there are plenty of needs around you. And I'm going to beg of you this morning to begin to pray and say, God, show me. Show me how I can become the hands and feet of Christ. How I can become His ambassador, His representative, so that I will have more and more opportunities to share the glorious gospel of our wonderful and awesome and incredible Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I want to ask two questions in regards to the topic of selfless and sacrificial service. The first one is this. Are acts of service mandated for the church? Okay, I want you to, I want you to ponder that question. Are acts of service mandated for the church? Are they essential to what it means to be a Christian? Okay? Just think about that question. Are acts of service, selfless, sacrificial service, essential to what it means to be a Christian? Okay, now what I think about the answer to that question is meaningless, okay? How I feel about that question, it does not matter. Okay, I'm asking you to puzzle it through from the perspective of what the Bible says. Was selfless service central to the life and ministry of our Savior who said, what you saw me do, John 13, 15, go and do it. Okay? In your thinking, is it essential? Is it, is it a fundamental, characteristic, irreducible, non-negotiable truth that should characterize every believer? Okay? The caveat follow-up is what? Does selfless service characterize, define your existence? As a Christian. Okay? Here's what I can tell you. Reading through the book of Acts, I think it is utterly inescapable that selfless, sacrificial service was what it meant to be a Christian. It's what it meant. I asked the question of this text. Did care for needy people. And widows were basically at the bottom of the barrel in the social strata of the ancient world. That's where you lived. It was to be abandoned. It was to be impoverished. It was to be abused and used. That was your life. 
Okay, does this text demand love for needy people? Okay, I make this observation. This text structures a response, structures and mandates a response to needs that were present within the church and within the community. It doesn't leave it to Helter Skelter. It doesn't say, you know, hey, Marie, if you ever get time and you want to, you, you know, you desire to reach out to someone, then maybe you could do that. It doesn't say that. It structures, it, it mandates, it lays out a pattern for how the people that serve are chosen and for how the people that are chosen function under the leadership of the church. That's the pattern. This text has been convicting to me. Okay, in terms of our church structure, I've been puzzling through these things and thinking, how, how do we get to where God wants us to be? A strategy was put in place solely to meet needs. And that was to be the heartbeat of the church. Okay, that you cannot look at this text and come away from it saying anything other than that in regards to the question I asked you this morning. This ministry was not a board with authority, but it was a board, or I'm sorry, a group of people that were put in place to lead in service by example. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? Okay, negatively, it didn't happen because all service was to be done by a designated group of people. Okay, that, oh, you got a problem? Let me call someone and they'll help you out. Let me call the pastor and he'll get one of the people at church to help you out. Okay, that is not the intention of this structure and of this setup. What is it? It's qualified leaders put into a place where they could serve. Okay, that's what this text is about. Positively, it was this. There were needs that weren't being met. And this strategy, this structure was put in place to make sure that that would not happen. And to me, when I read that, that, that to me is amazingly powerful. Such love and concern for needy people that a structure, a safety net is put into place to be sure that that can't happen. Okay, now, I, here's, here's the best way for the safety net to be strengthened for every person in the body of Christ to realize and to confess that selfless, sacrificial service is central to what it is to be an authentic Christian. It's just, it's part of what we do. It should define what we do. And, 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 and in John chapter 13, Jesus witnesses to this, this text. Here's what he says. Or what it says. It says, when he had finished washing their feet. This is the evening before the crucifixion. When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He said to his disciples, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, exalted terms. And he says, and rightly so. They are true. For that is what I am. Now, that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You should also wash, what's it say next? One another's feet. You should, it is necessary, you must. Okay, that's the, the sense of the little Greek word that's tied in here. You must wash one another's feet. And we know that the picture, when it stretches out, becomes a picture of selfless and sacrificial service offered to others. It was just part of what it was to be a Christian. I have set you an example for you so that you would do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the first thought that I think begins to emerge out of this text is this, okay? Acts of service 
and sacrificial love are mandated, are essential to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10 say this. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. And this is, anybody here this morning tired? Right? I'm tired. I went to bed too late and got up too early, just laying in bed, looking at the ceiling. I hit, in the spring, I do this. I was weird. I won't even tell you what time I wake up because it'll scare you. Okay? I just like, okay. So I was a little tired about 7 o'clock this morning. I went, man, I am like really tired. But if I fall asleep now, it's going to be one rough service. <laughs> Trying to wake up. So what is it? Don't become weary. Life is hard. Okay, we live in the suburbs. People commute. It's demanding. A lot of stuff going on in your life. Paul says, don't become weary in well-doing. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, in light of not giving up, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Folks, this is not a suggestion. Let us do good to all people. And then he narrows it down, especially to the household of faith, to the family of God. We are family. To quote a famous, I think, wedding song, okay? We're together. We have an obligation to the world around us Absolutely. And we have this more essential obligation to each other. I think it is, it's inescapable. But this is is what God wants us to do. The aim of this selfless service is what? It is to relieve the pain of a fallen world where things break, where people get sick, where people die and people become widows. They become impoverished. And why does God bless you? Why has God given you more than you need? Okay, that's the question I think we need to wrestle through. God, why? Why did you give me this set of skills? Why did you give me this aptitude, this desire? Why did you do that? Now, one answer can be to make my life better. It's all about me. I'm an American citizen. I'm an individual. One person, one vote. That's my country. Okay, that is not the country of God. That is not the church. In the church, God has rescued you from your sin. And He wants you, out of profound gratitude, to live the life of a servant. To become what His Son became. A table waiter. With disciples who would, in hours, betray Him. The church is to be a place where people see a bit of heaven on earth. When people interact with you on the street, when they when they experience you in the context of needs in their life, what are you to be? You're to be a taste of heaven that God is sprinkling into the world as what? The salt of the earth. He wants you to actually make a difference. It's our purpose from God. This text establishes the importance of selfless service. It raises a banner that says, we will not let people fall through the cracks. That we will love as Christ loved. Selflessly and sacrificially. So my answer to the first question, are acts of service mandated? Are they essential to what it means to be a Christian? Okay, I think if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you have your answer to that question. So what will you do? What will you do? Can I suggest that you would do what Jesus did? Not what he might do. Not the hypothetical what he would do. But would you say to yourself, between yourself and God, and say, God, what did Jesus do? 
and give me grace to do what Jesus did. Give me courage to realign my life, the use of my time, the enjoyment of my family time. Folks, can I share something with you? In, got to think of the month, in December, my daughters were home and it was likely the last time that we would be together for a while. I became profoundly self-centered. I wanted every minute I could have with them because life is about what? About us. Okay, I just, that was it. And when it was over, I want to tell you something. I, I felt in my heart a sense of selfishness and conviction that I had not felt for a while. I later thought, as I, as I thought through it, it's, it's not wrong to spend time with your friend. Please, please understand what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not, I am all for it. Okay, but I thought to myself this. I thought, what if I had taken the girls, instead of sitting down and watching a movie and not talking for two and a half hours, in the name of being together, what if we had gone out and visited someone? Or what if we had found a place where we could just go and serve together and help someone? I'm going to tell you what. It would have been, for me, a much greater joy to sprinkle into our lives what it is to be an authentic Christian. To sprinkle into our lives what is essential to what we are. Like Christ, who was among us as one who serves. And when we do that, what happens? Here's what I believe happens. I believe the joy in your life will take off like a rocket. Why? God saved you and filled you with His Spirit for that purpose. And when you start to join with Him and say, okay, God, I'm going to seek opportunities. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Just start to pray. God, how can I lead my family in this aspect of authentic Christianity where life is not all about us, our comfort, our satisfaction, our desires, our happiness? May God deliver us from that, that perspective of life that doesn't give purpose. And may we begin to restructure in little ways that lead to bigger ways. The gift that God has given us. The gift of our life. So are they mandated? I think the answer is clear. Are they beneficial and in fact powerful? Okay, that's the second question. I only have two. Okay, are they essential? Is service what it is to be an authentic Christian in the world? And secondly, if I choose to walk in obedience to what I think is a clear mandate, okay, will it make a difference? Okay, that's the question in the back of your mind. Will it in fact be powerful? Why does God place such a high value on service? I think these statements answer the question, why? And I think these statements that follow tell you why it is in fact beneficial and powerful when we walk in humble, selfless, sacrificial love. The first statement I'll give you is this. It is what Jesus taught and did. Okay? It is what Jesus taught and did. 
Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, verse 9. Somebody that no other Jewish man would talk to, so disdained and rejected was this woman that when the disciples come, they say to him, why are you a man, Jewish, talking to a Samaritan woman? Why are you doing that? Okay, what were they doing? Protocol. Hebrew protocol. The disciples knew it. That is the heart of Christ. Who spoke honestly and transparently to her need and rescued her by truth and deeds of love from her sin. That's Jesus. It's what he taught and did. Zacchaeus. A tax collector, the most despised man in his town, a head tax collector, if you bury yourself into the Greek language. He's up in a tree so we can get a clear view of Christ because he is challenged vertically, climbs a tree, is looking down. Jesus looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, what is Jesus doing? The disciples are thinking, not again. I mean, the woman, that's what, but he's a tax collector. And what does Jesus say? I'm coming to your house. Folks, we have no idea of how stunning and shocking that would have been. So strong was this pursuit and selfless service that didn't care about reputation and personality that Jesus could be called later in his life. He is condemning him a friend of sinners isn't he? And the disciples had to say, yep. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. That's our Savior. The disciples in John chapter 13, Jesus takes off his robe, dons a towel, the the clothing of a servant, a foot washer, and washes their feet. When he gets to Peter, what's Peter's response? Have at it, Lord. You know what he says? Do you realize how inappropriate this is? And here's Peter again. Those other disciples received this like it was nothing. But I understand. You can't wash my feet. You're our master and Lord. And what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, Peter, if you don't let me serve you, you have no part in me. If you don't let me model what it is to be an authentic Christian, you have no part in the kingdom. What does Peter then say? Peter's like, a bath, please. Right? That's what He's like, all of me then. He wants to be part of the kingdom, but what is he struggling with? The person on the top is put on the bottom of this pyramid. He leads by sacrificial service. Why? It's the essence of what it is to be a Christian. It is the essential, fundamental characteristic that should define the life of every believer. And folks, please understand what I'm saying also. Okay? If God, in His mercy and wisdom, has blessed you with a position of leadership at work, serve Him there by inverting the paradigm. Serve people. Okay, but I say this without betraying confidence. Someone in my life, is that general enough? Okay. Was recently honored in a fairly spectacular way. Because he didn't let his position go to his head. He was there as a leader, and yet he served. 
And because he selflessly served and treated people like he would want to be treated, he didn't go for accolades. He received accolades. Why? Because as a Christian, what did he do? He inverted the paradigm. He didn't demand. He loved and served and cared. And the watching world said, this is different. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. It is what Jesus taught and did. And when you act like Him, you will have a massive impact for the glory of God. Secondly, it is in asking, is it beneficial? Yes, because it is how we complete Acts 1-1, what Jesus began to do and teach. But folks, look, God left the church here. All that came to faith in Christ left behind. Why? To make a difference. To, and this way Luke says it, Acts chapter 1 verse 1. Here's what he says. A verse that has never stuck out to me till this study. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. What were those instructions? I am convinced personally that they were the instructions that are similar to John chapter 13. Jesus went out and loved people. He served them. He he associated with, with those that were fallen, with the woman in adultery, and he rescued her from the judgment that was falling on her life. A taste of heaven. He fed bread to the multitudes. A taste of heaven. He served people over and over and over and over and over. And when he left, he said to the disciples, Now, what I did, why don't you go do that? Okay, our problem is that we look at evangelism, like we talked about last Sunday, and we say, scary, nervous. What about me? What are people going to think of me? Selfless service will deliver you from that bondage. And it will give you opportunities to begin to do what God called the church to do, to selflessly serve and love one another, and to take the good news of the liberation that is found in Christ and proclaim it and serve it on the platter of love and good works. That's what God wants us to do. It is the essence of what Jesus did, and it is why He left us behind. Through His life of word and deed, Jesus left a a dramatic and amazing impact. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 tells us about the early church. Here's what it says. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. The Bible says, After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Verse 32, following the indwelling of the Spirit. All believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Not compulsorily, as Doug talked about a few weeks ago. Not they had to, but they wanted to. Why? Because they had received so much from Christ. Here's what John would say later. He, said, he would say, we love because he first loved 
us. The, the key to being liberated in selfless service is what? Understanding how much you are loved so that you begin to overflow with gratitude that looks like selfless, sacrificial service. That's what God wants. That's what He's seeking to do through the church to impact the world around us with this amazing, magnetic, life-changing truth of the gospel that liberates us to serve. The key to attractive Christianity is spirit-driven acts of love and passionate gospel sharing. This text assures us that the acts of love get done. And I believe that the Great Commission ensures and calls us to be sure that spreading the good news of Christ gets done. One other outcome, and I'll stop here this morning. If I begin to serve selflessly, what will happen? I believe this will happen. I believe that your selfless service in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, will authenticate the message of the gospel. Somebody made this observation to me last, I think it was earlier this week, in light of our discussion last Sunday about sharing our faith with others. They made this observation. They said, you know what? I'm convinced that many people don't share their faith in Christ because their life simply does not measure up to what it is to be a Christian. And I thought, God, help us. If anything will stifle gospel sharing, it will be hidden sin in our lives. And when we confess it, and find forgiveness, we will find that we are freed to do what God, by His grace, has called us to do. If the silence in terms of the gospel is deafening because of sin in your life, you need to get that right with God. Because we live in a world that is asking a question. The question the world around us is asking is this. Is what you believe real? Is it valid? Can I rest my life? Can I build my life on what you believe? The answer to that question at one level is this. Are you building your life on the gospel you believe? Are you living the life of a Christian who has been liberated and freed by the surrendering power of Christ? Is your marriage fundamentally different? And please, I am not saying this morning that mine is. Okay? I'm asking the question. Is your parenting observed by the world around you fundamentally different than the world around you? Is your, are your interactions at sports events fundamentally different? Do you help needy people? Is there something attractive, magnetic about the life that you live in Christ that people look at it and say, that looks like the real thing. And it looks like that has changed their life. People do not drive around looking at the back of your car to see if there is a Christian fish on the back of your car. It's not what they're doing. Okay? I'm not saying it's wrong to have it there, but I'm not brave enough. Okay? I don't trust myself enough to put that on the back of my car. I'm not there yet. 
The world is asking, is it real? God is saying, if it does not change you fundamentally, the gospel, if it hasn't transformed you and caused you to become a person who serves, here's what God says, and I'll read you this passage of Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows Him. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how He showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a wrath-removing sacrifice for our sin. Dear friends, since God so loved us, and here I think is the essential nature of Christianity, we ought also to love one another. Okay, if my profession of faith in Christ has never led to transformation and selfless service, I think James chapter 2 also begs the question, can the kind of faith that sees a need and doesn't respond, can that kind of faith save? That's what James asked. So, that leaves me in a spot as a preacher where I have to press that out and say, has the gospel that changed your heart transformed your life? Because that's what the true gospel of Christ always does. And that's what James is saying. Can the kind of faith that never leads to selfless, sacrificial love actually alter your destiny, let alone your life? Can that kind of faith save? So I press this on you this morning. Do you sense deep in your heart a revulsion to what I'm talking about this morning? Or a desire? Look, we all fall down the stairs spiritually. We all can become very self-centered. I, give you, I could give you numerous illustrations from my fallen life to assure you that you're not alone. But if the call to selfless service does not attract you to the epitome of selfless service, then I think you need to go to God and say, God, is my heart truly changed? Has the good news that Christ bore the wrath of my sin on the cross, has that good news truly impacted my life and set me free? Has it ever really changed me? Tim Keller said, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true saving faith. It is such an essential mark of authentic, true Christianity that it can be used as a test of authentic faith. If you know Christ, He wants you to serve. 
the motivation for that, go to the cross. That's what we're going to do this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, we're going to, we're going to look at the cross. We're going to look at the, the way that Jesus, in the washing of the feet of the disciples, initiated the demonstration on the eve of His crucifixion, the full extent of His love. That's what John 15 says. Early in the chapter, on this night, Jesus demonstrated to His disciples the full extent of His amazing, transforming love. How did He do it? He washed their feet, selfless, humiliating, sacrificial service, and He died on the cross. The full extent of His love is not simply that He died for me. It is that He also lived the life I couldn't live. Died to death. I should have died. So that by me simply seeing my need for a glorious Savior to give me the righteous life that I couldn't live and to bear the consequence of the wrath of God that I deserve, that my life could be completely changed. Do you know this kind of love? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I ask you to do it with this verse, John 13, 1. He showed them the full extent of his love. Paul would later say he took the form of a servant. And in that form, selfless, sacrificial, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Galatians 3 would later say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And on the cross, what did Jesus bear? He bore the curse of my sin and yours, which is death. And he offers to all of us a free gift that when and if you receive it, it will change your life. The result will be this. It'll be acts of love showered upon a needy world. And those acts of love, as they are poured out on the world around you and God sprinkles you into your sphere of influence, whether it be high or low, God will sprinkle you into that to take the good news of Christ on the platter of selfless service. He will put the glorious good news of His risen Son, Jesus. So that more may know the truth that changes our lives. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father.